Okay, last time when we ended, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, so you might want to just go ahead and turn there. Some time ago, somebody told me that geniuses need to hear things eight times in order to remember them. The rest of us need to hear it, oh, five times, I've been corrected. Uh, five times, geniuses, um, the rest of us need to hear it like 24, 25 times. I obviously need to hear it many more times than that. But So we're going to repeat, to some degree, what we ended with last time in 1 Corinthians 13, because I was a little pressed for time, and that's a big chunk to go through, but it is so very, very crucial to understand. There are folks who may think that running through the doctrine of revelation in terms of the revelation of God to man, categorized as general and special revelation, it's process, its means, and its completion uh, somewhat is uh, pretty clear to all of us. We understand this. We understand that the canon is closed. There's no more revelation given. But let me tell you, folks, this is where the battle lies today. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation when he uh, nailed the 95 Theses onto the door of the church at Wittenberg, if you haven't seen that movie, Luther, I encourage you to get it. It's out on DVD now, and it's really well done. That's just a side note. The door of the church was the local bulletin board, and so he nailed 95 discussion points up there called theses, and uh, that started the Protestant Reformation on October 31, 1517. Luther said that, one said that if you defend the fortress at every point at which Uh, If you defend the uh, fortress at every point except where you are being attacked, you will lose the battle. Now, the point at which the primary attack comes today, as I said before, to use technical languages, epistemology, to use everyday languages, is knowledge. How do you know what you know? You say you, as a believer talking to an unbeliever, make the claim that Jesus Christ is God, that the way of salvation is based upon faith alone and Christ alone. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's what the Bible says. Well, how do you know the Bible's not just the word of just anybody? Uh, you, know, the, the, you know, so many scholars say this and that and the other thing. They can quote whoever they go to on the Discovery Channel or A&E or whatever. And too many Christians are just left kind of hanging. I, well, I don't know how to answer that. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So that's called apologetics. From the Greek word apologia, which doesn't mean to apologize, it means to give a legal defense. That means a well-reasoned argument or understanding for why you believe something. And so we need to go over this again and again because this is the issue outside the church. The attack is on the Scripture. This is very clear in the Da Vinci Code, and it's been going on for 200 years or more. And the attack is that the Bible is just another collection of literature. And now the latest kink in the whole argument is that, yeah, and they, those, old, those old white men that put together the canon uh, back in the 5th century just uh, left a lot of books out. Just look at all these other books. So you can pick and choose. You're not any better or worse than those guys were. You can make up your own canon. And we've discovered the Gnostic Gospels and all of these other 
uh, religious texts that were circulating and, mo- and all declared heretical, of course, by the, by the uh, uh, church fathers. And we now have all these, so you can just put together your own collection. So we have to be prepared to answer this. Well, that's the battle from outside the church is how do you know that's God's word? How do you know that God has spoken? How do you know that, that you can rely on that? How do you know that it's those books and not some other books? And, of course, this is the big challenge in postmodernism is to debunk all canons. Canon simply means a rule. They want to get rid of the canon of literature. They want to get rid of the canon of and whatever it may be, whatever field it may be, whatever the standards are. On the inside of the church, you have the same problem, the same battle, the same issue with knowledge. How do you know that God is speaking to you? Do you know it because you've exegeted the Scripture according to a set standard of procedures in exegesis, word studies, syntax, context, culture, what we call isagogics? Uh, Do you do that, or do you just sort of pray about it and see how the Spirit moves you? Do you just open your Bible and close your eyes and let your finger fall on some text and then think about it for five minutes, and that's what God's going to say. And if you don't really understand everything that's there, you just say it longer, louder, and get more emotional, which is what happens in a lot of churches. Or how do you go about this? So is there a standard that you use in studying, coming to understand the text, or do you just have some sort of internal feeling, some sort of internal barometer that you blame on the Holy Spirit because that's what it is? And you'd be amazed at how many Christians want to blame all kinds of things, failures on their part mostly, and irresponsibility and unwillingness to do the diligent study work on the Holy Spirit. And it is this area that is so crucial today because people come along and they say, well, God is speaking to me. Well, how do you know God is speaking to me? How do you know it's the voice of God? And this was... No less of a problem in the, in the uh, ancient world, in the Old Testament, than it was now. And we studied how the, when God gave the Pentateuch to the nations, he gave them two tests. A test of theological consistency in Deuteronomy 13, and a test of, theo- of uh, prophetic accuracy in Deuteronomy 18. And that was the standard. And in Deuteronomy 13, we're told that God allows in his permissive will, people to come along and even whatever the power is, whatever the method is, allows them to perform real, genuine miracles, signs and wonders, not in the power of God, of course, but they perform real, genuine miracles, healing, signs and wonders, whatever it may be. God allows that to test you to see if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, are you going to stick fast to what the Word of God says, or are you going to add to it from what other people say? And so we need to understand a principle that is lost today, and that is that the Word of God, when the Word of God becomes more real to us than our experiences, our feelings, our intuitions, our hardships, our difficulties, that's when we're walking by faith and not by sight. And it is not some, walking by faith is not some you know, ethereal, uh, super-spiritual, otherworldly endeavor, which is how it comes across in the media, that's somehow a counterpoint to science and knowledge and truth. But faith, is a, faith really undergirds everything. We've gone through the chart I've used in the past, talking about the 
four ways of knowing. And those four ways of knowing have to do with rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and revelation. You don't see faith as a means of perception. You don't do that because that one thing that juxtaposes faith to knowledge as if they're opposites. And in the Bible, faith is always directed to something, and faith is in and of itself non-meritorious. So it's the object of faith that's important. And in rationalism, the object of faith is human ability in intellection or thinking. In empiricism, the object of faith is man's ability to properly interpret the sense data. In mysticism, it's a faith in man's ability to intuit absolute truth. And in Revelation, the object of faith is the revealed word of God. So you see, it's not faith versus knowledge. It is, what's the object of your faith? Is it finite human experience, finite human reason, or is it the infinite, omnipotent God who is absolute truth, who is omniscient, and who has revealed himself and overseen the process of revelation. So that's the issue, is what are you believing? It's not faith versus reason, faith versus science, but that's what you hear again so much that most Christians have already lost the war because as soon as somebody does that, they agree that that's a legitimate categorical counterpoint. And if you've done that, you've already lost the battle because you're operating on wrong or human viewpoint categories. And in the church, the issue is just as bad because what they do is they import into Christianity the same methodology, and that is that if I can somehow come to know truth through a sort of intellectual hot flash outside the church, then I can do the same thing inside the church. And I can just intuit absolute truth and say that's God speaking to me and the Holy Spirit uh, leads me this way. And I've heard pastors say, well, we really don't want to plan our schedule out too far. We don't want to make certain commitments because we want to leave room for, for the Holy Spirit to work, for the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit. And I always respond by saying, well, let me get this right. The Holy Spirit can't work in organized, pre-planned events. He has, you have to wait and let him be disorganized and, at the, and function at the last minute so that I, you know, help me with this now. So the issue is that the Holy Spirit is not honored and glorified by, by poor planning and lack of discipline because, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 14, our God is a God of order and a God of stability. So we have to address this question, and the key text on whether or not revelation is going to cease is in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, the way we get where, just to back us up, stay in 1 Corinthians 13 if you've opened their Bibles there, is Hebrews 1, 1 to 1, 2a. That's where we're studying. Two categ- two, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying there's two periods of revelatory activity. The first is in the Old Testament, which is referenced in verse 1. After God spoke in various fragments and a variety of means or forms, In time past, to the fathers, that's the Old Testament Jewish patriarchs who are prophets, by means of the prophets. The fathers are Old Testament, the Old Testament believers, and the prophets are the Old Testament prophets. Hebrews 1-2, he has in these last days spoken to us by means of his son. So this is what I hope to finish this evening, is talking about special, special revelation. 
and what has happened over the last 100 or 200 years, because it's, it's important to have a little historical perspective. I find that, that most Christians don't have a clue what's going on. Historically, they turn on the TV and they watch various ministries on TV, and they're just like, wow, can you believe they did that? Where, where, did, where did that guy Benny Hinn come from anyway? Well, guess what? All this stuff's related and if you, you know, if you don't know who the players are and you don't have a scorecard, you can really get fouled up. So I want to get into that a little bit tonight. 1 Corinthians 13, though, is a key passage. And the, if you've been around non-charismatic doctrinal churches for a while, you know that, for, that verse 9 or verse 10 is the one that everybody goes to. How do you know that? tongues, revelation cease. Well, because the perfect comes, the perfect's the canon of Scripture. And you've probably heard that so much that you say, well, what's the issue here? Let me tell you, it's a big issue. Because you get out there in the real wide world of, of evangelical Christianity, for the last 35 or 40 years, the one view, the one interpretation of this passage, and there's about, about 10 different interpretations of the perfect, the one that is dumped on the most as being irrelevant and non-supportable is the view that the perfect equals the canon. In fact, Bruce Bumgardner, who's a pastor over at Pine Valley, told me that when he was at Dallas Seminary, the head of the theology department, who used to be really good, uh, the head of the theology department there assigned in their pneumatology class, assigned the, the students to write a position paper on the cessation of the sign gifts, cessation of tongues. And he said, but I don't want anybody taking the view that the perfect is the canon because that's pretty much been decimated by recent scholarship. That's the view that we hold. Now, is that really a valid statement? But you get out there in the read the literature, talk to people who are in charismatic or Pentecostal churches, and they are all convinced that the perfect being the canon is just, you, you just have to have a single-digit IQ and be completely ignorant of contemporary theology to even think that's a valid position. Okay? That's why I'm taking the time with this, because not only is it a valid position, it's the only position that makes sense within the vocabulary of the text. And once you lay this out for people, it's amazing. there's just not a leg left to stand on unless you just want to do what is popular today, and that is just say, well, I just don't want to believe that. Well, that's just fine. But it's amazing today how many people don't want to believe whatever is based on reason or logic. In fact, I was talking with a lawyer not too long ago, and he was telling me about the fact that so often in lawsuits, uh, uh, plaintiffs will come in and they'll want to have a lawsuit and he'll come back and he'll say, well, in order to have a lawsuit, we have to set up a chain of logic. And you go from A to B to C to D and then you prove it with point F. He said, all you do is go from A to H to P and then back over to B and it never ends up logically with any line to, to what you want to conclude. I don't care is the response. That's what I want to do. See, every man wants to do what's right in their own eyes today. We've rejected reason because of arrogance. Okay, let's go through this again. Just walk our way through it to make sure we understand what's happening. Contextually, in chapter 12, Paul talked about the gifts. And in there, he seems to make a distinction between two types of gifts. Standard service gifts 
and revelatory gifts. And he talks about tongues, interpretation of tongues, knowledge, and wisdom in prophecy. And those are all uh, bunched together in one verse. The problem in Corinth was that the Corinthians were elevating these gifts to a high level of significance for spirituality. Now, the background is that not too far from Corinth was the Temple of Delphi. And you had the Oracle of Delphi, which was a priestess who went in and smelled the vapors that came up from the omphalos, or the navel of the earth. And they, they, she inhaled that. She would then see visions and dreams, and she would be, her body would be possessed by the god Apollo, and she would then speak in ecstatic utterances. And this was standard operating procedure in the worship of Dionysius as well. Dionysius was the god of wine, and if you drank enough wine, you'd speak in tongues, and you would exchange your spirit for the god's spirit, and he would speak through the maenads or the priestesses in tongues. So this was SOP in, in pagan Greek mystical religion, is that if you want to be spiritual, you just got to let the god speak to you, and he does it in this kind of unknown language. So they're elevating this in, in arrogance and saying we're super spiritual because we have we speak in tongues and these other people aren't. So Paul lays out the basis for spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and in the beginning of chapter 13 he says, look, the real issue is love. See, love is always juxtaposed to arrogance. Love is based on a genuine humility and appreciation for what God has for us. So he defines love in the first seven verses. And then he's going to make a case that love abides through the church age. In fact, love is going to abide into eternity. And he's going to make this distinction. And the key is to understand where that last verse goes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But he says, but now, and we saw last time, the now there means now in this church age. It's a word in the Greek that indicates a broader period of time. The now in the previous verse indicates a narrower, more immediate sense. So that word that is translated there at the end is the Greek word nuni, N-U-N-I, and that means, but now in this church age, what continues is faith, hope, and love. And faith, hope, and love continue in contrast to these three gifts he mentions in verse 8 that are going to stop. That's the contrast. If you don't understand the context there, then you're going to miss the whole thing. And that's what really is part of the problem in Bible study is few people take the time to really just sit and reflect and observe the text and spend time on it over a long period of time. That's the first rule in Bible study methods, as it is in anything, is just pay attention to what you're reading, what you're seeing, write down observations. But everybody wants to jump to application or interpretation and run right past observation uh, very, very quickly. In fact, recently I was teaching this to some, some pastors who had never had this kind of training, and I gave them the assignment to take a verse and go home and write down 25 points of observation. I knew what I would get. The next morning I got 25 points of application from almost all of them. And that's because we don't just take the time to do what Sherlock Holmes does, or if you're more modern, what they do on CSI, is to just sit and pay attention to all the little details. You know, get out the microscope, test all the fluids in the room, you know, all that stuff, figure out what's happened. And then, once you get all the data, the interpretation is just going to fall right in your lap. 
You don't have to spend a lot of time with that, and the application is going to come out. So what Paul says in verse 8 is that love never fails. That's the big idea. Remember, eighth grade paragraph writing, topical sentences, that's the main idea. Love never fails. However, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away with. What's he saying? Love is permanent. These three things are not. That's what's happening in that verse. Love is permanent. Those are not. Prophecy and knowledge, though, if we pay attention to the verbiage, will both be done away. This is New American Standard, I think, I have up here. The verb is katargeo, which means they will be abolished. They will be, they will be removed. Okay, they're passive, future passive, which means something happens. They receive the action of what happens. So something's going to happen that will abolish them. They receive the action of the verb. In contrast, tongues are said to cease. Pao. Now, I'm not going to get off onto tongues right now. The main thrust of this passage really isn't on tongues. The best argument for the cessation of tongues doesn't come from here because the perfect has to do with these revelatory gifts. The best argument for the cessation of tongues comes from its purpose in chapter 14, that its purpose was a sign of judgment on Israel. It goes back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God warned the nation Israel that if they disobeyed him, they would be conquered from a people whose language they didn't understand. That's what Paul, uh, Isaiah picks up in Isaiah uh, chapter 61 when he is... Uh, when he's quoting, when he is warning them about the Assyrian invasion, and then Paul quotes from that, from that passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse, verse 21. I may have misstated Isaiah. It's Isaiah 28.11. I said 61, but it's Isaiah 28.11. And so you see that it, it runs all the way through the Scripture. You just can't take this out of, con- out of historical context to the Bible. Okay. Back to 13.8. Just follow the bouncing ball here. If there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. Knowledge will be done away. It's the same verb. So whatever ends one's going to end the other. The implication is that by the time that happens, tongues is already out of the way. Katargeo is a future passive indicative, meaning it receives the action. Pao is a future middle indicative, which indicates it's just going to naturally die. That's the, that's the idea there. But the importance is on, you, you have a word shift and you have a, a voice shift. Now let me give you a little added insight here for those of you who someday may need to use this. You can just file it away. One of the things that is real popular today in, in seminaries is that Greek grammarians have a tendency to say, oh, this is just a stylistic shift. The author just wanted to use a different word. He didn't want to be boring and use the same word over and over and over again. He didn't? Well, if he wanted to have stylistic shifts, why did he use katargeo five times in three verses? He's not into stylistic variation for the sake of stylistic variation. That's a way to avoid the implications of verbal plenary inspiration. But it is happening at schools that you wouldn't believe. Because what's happened today is people affirm a doctrinal statement in theory, but in practice they violate it left and right. Okay, 
Prophecy and knowledge are done away with. Then in verse 9, we learn something else about prophecy and knowledge, that they're both considered to be partial gifts. In other words, they, they only communicate a limited amount of information. We know in part and we prophesy in part. So the two partial gifts are going to be abolished by something. That's the conclusion from those two verses. Then in verse 10, we learn that what abolishes them is the coming of this thing called the perfect, which is a lousy translation. I don't know why they did it in the King James, but maybe that's what perfect meant in those days, that perfect meant complete. But the word group based on uh, this root T-E-L-E, teleos, teleao is the uh, verb, uh, this word group never means flawlessness, in this perfection in the sense of flawlessness, anywhere in the New Testament. It just doesn't. And yet it's always translated that that way in, in Scripture. It has to do with completion or maturity. And uh, that's always the idea. But it's in a context which contrasts it with something that is partial. So even if you have the two options of perfection or completion, when you're talking about something partial, the only thing that makes sense in context is to say that teleos means that which is that which is complete. It completes something that's incomplete. You know, knowledge is incomplete. Prophecy is incomplete. When the completing thing comes, it only makes sense. Then that which is incomplete will be abolished. So what could the complete thing be? Well, we'll skip, I want to skip this slide. The, uh, there are seven interpretations of this. On the completion side, you have two views. It's the completed canon or it's the mature church. And I always say, well, what's the difference? What brought the ch- because in a mature church view, they say the church reached maturity when the last apostle died. When the last apostle died, the canon was closed. There isn't a lot of practical difference here. There is on some exegetical issues. I understand that, and I take a completed canon view, but I'm just arguing that both of these views find 95 A.D. to be the, terminal, the terminus point. All these other views take it as some kind of perfection when you're absent from the body and you're face-to-face with the Lord at either the rapture or the second coming or whatever your theological system is. Once you leave this life, all of a sudden you're going to have full, clear knowledge. And what they do is they take the, take the passage, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. They take that as being face-to-face with God. Yeah, when we're face-to-face with God, we'll know it all. No, we won't. We'll, still, we'll never be omniscient. God's omniscient. We're not. We'll always have limited knowledge. We may see some things more clearly, but that's not the point of the passage. It's not face-to-face with God. Because it's not talking about a perfect state. It's talking about an incomplete state. So, what Paul is arguing here is that there's going to come a time when these revelatory gifts are completed by something. What completes them has to be something in kind. You don't, um, you don't complete a half a glass of water with a steak. They're not the same thing. You have to use the same, same thing. So if you're talking about incomplete revelatory gifts, what completes it must also be uh, revelatory by nature. Verse 11 simply explains the process that there are 
periods of differences. There's a immature versus mature. When you're a child, you think like a child, act like a child, speak like a child. But when you're an adult, hopefully you put away those things and you grow up. That's, that, he's explaining his, his whole argument here in terms of the now versus then. And then in verse, thir- verse 12, he continues that. For now, see, now as a child, and he uses the word RT, which means right now in this immediate now, or we would interpret that to mean in the pre-canon period, the apostolic period, we see in a mirror that is something that reflects back, not through, but something that reflects back. So what do you look at in a mirror? What are you looking at in a mirror? You're looking at yourself. So what do we look we're, in the mirror? We are examining what the mirror says about who we are. Now we see in a mirror dimly, and the word dimly there is enigma. It means it's enigmatic. It comes from a usage in numbers, which we'll look at in a second. But then, when the canon's complete, we'll see face to face. Face to face with what? Face to face with the Word of God. We will have the complete canon, so we have a whole picture. We have a completed picture. We're looking at the whole thing so that this reinforces the doctrine of the perspicacity of Scripture. It reveals us for who and what we really are. But if pieces are missing, then we don't get everything because we have incomplete or partial revelation. And then he says, again now, repeating that same word, RT, now I know in part... Ekmerus, that same word that we had before, that, par- that prophecy and knowledge are partial. I know incomplete. But then I will know completely. Epinosis, full knowledge. Just as I also have been fully known. In other words, the Word of God can give you epinosis, knowledge, about who and what you are and your problems and your sin nature and how to resolve those problems. Now, Numbers 12, 6 through 8 talks about, God is talking to Moses about how he, how he has revealed himself uniquely to Moses. And in verse 8 he says, With him, that is Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. Mouth to mouth, face to face, very similar idioms. And when it's translated into Septuagint, dark sayings is the word enigma. Same word we have over in, in uh, 13. Uh, six, which or thirteen seven, which indicates that what he's talking about there, in terms of seeing through a mirror enigmatically, has to do with the the uncertainty of prophecy. Once the canon's complete, it's going to make sense. Back to verse twelve. Now we see through a mirror dimly. That's the verse reference. First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve. Now we see through a mirror enigmatically, but then face to face. Okay, so the now and then then refers to the pre-canon apostolic period when you had incomplete revelation because uh, you don't have a collected canon yet. You don't even have all of it revealed yet. And then you have the post-apostolic period of the canon, which gives you a definite rule. And so the conclusion is, but now, now in a broader sense, he changes the word for now, and uh, it's not just stylistic, but now abide. Now what continues is faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So if he's talking about now, in any sense of the word now, when he's living in 90, uh, when, when, he, when he wrote this in, what is it, about 54, uh, 54 A.D., when he's saying now faith, hope, and love are going to continue, he's not talking about in the future faith, hope, and love are going to continue. 
The point I'm making is he's not saying faith, hope, and love are going to continue after the second coming. See, if you take the view that the charismatics and even many non-charismatics take, in fact, recently there was a book, a real popular publishing thing that's happened in the last 20 or 30 years, is to come out with views called Three Views on Hell, Four Views on uh, Election, Three Views on Spirituality, Five Views on Spirituality. And these are good for seminary students and, and uh, Bible college students because what you'll have is they'll, they'll select scholars, seminary professors, and different schools who come out of different theological schools, and they will set forth their best case. And they'll each set forth their case on tongues, and then they will be responded to by the other three men. So it's like a debate format in print. And it's very helpful to juxtapose the different views and work your way through them to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of everybody's argument. So there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called Four Views on Tongues. What was interesting is the guy who wrote the article on the cessation of tongues was from Westminster Theological Seminary named Richard Gaffin. And he never once referred to 1 Corinthians 13.8 in his whole argument. Never once. And when the, one of the uh, representatives of the uncertain but maybe view, that means you're not sure whether it ceased or not, but maybe, maybe it didn't. That was his view. Maybe it's possible it continues. Incidentally, he was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. The other three views were all graduates of Dallas Seminary. Shows how far things have fallen. But um, in his comment, he says, isn't it remarkable that here's a whole entire article written on the cessation of the signed gifts, and he never mentioned 1 Corinthians 13.8. We've finally gotten past that. See, scholars don't want to hear it. Who cares what the Word of God says? So um, their argument is that the, the terminal point here, when the perfect comes, is when you die or when you're face-to-face with, with the Lord. But the thing is, after you die or you're face-to-face with the Lord, whether it's a rapture, second coming, or whatever, hope and faith stop. So it can't be that. Because what the argument of the passage is, is that love is going to, is permanent where these other things are impermanent, and faith, hope, and love are going to continue past the point that knowledge and prophecy end. You see, the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, now we walk by faith and not by sight. But you see, when we're absent from the body, we're going to be walking by sight. So obviously faith stops being operational at death or rapture or second coming or whenever. Uh, Romans 8, 24 says the same thing about hope. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? You see, hope has to do with that which is unseen. Uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen, the, the, the confidence of things hoped for, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, 2 and 3. So what we have here is a clear indication that when we, when we look at this, that, that the terminal point for the perfect has to be the canon of Scripture. It just can't be anything else. And this is based on the view that, that the apostles were those who oversaw the revelatory process. And that's what's important to, to the background of Hebrews 1. In fact, what was interesting in the article that I referenced earlier by Dr. Gaffin was that he put tremendous weight on Ephesians 2.20 and Hebrews chapter 1. 
that just on the strength of these two passages, that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, which means that once the foundation's laid, you don't lay it again every time you build a new floor. You just do it once. <coughs> and the fact that God has spoken, Aorist tense in Hebrews 1, 1, and 1, 2, and then the warning, uh, the, the warning passage in uh, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, which we'll get to, that on the strength of these two passages, you've got to argue that revelation ceased, which I thought was fascinating. I think that by not referring to 1 Corinthians 13.80 had weaknesses, but uh, this is where the strength is. So that gets us to the end of where we were last time. I just wanted to reinforce that for everybody that 1 Corinthians 13.8-13 nails it. Knowledge and prophecy ceased when the canon was closed. And there was a clear closing of the New Testament canon just as there was a closing of the Old Testament canon. The Jewish Leaders clearly understood that God didn't speak anymore after Malachi and that there were no more additions to the canon. The Apocrypha, which you have in a Catholic Bible, it's part of the Old Testament, not part of the New Testament for you Protestants who don't have a clue what the Apocrypha is. This was a collection of books that had to do with what was going on in Israel between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. First and Second Maccabees deals with the, um, uh, the, the Hasmonean revolt and what was going on with Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek rulers and Alexander and everything that happened there. So it's great historical data, but it isn't canon material. And the Jews recognized that. And they didn't wait till 90 A.D. to to close the canon at the Council of Yamnia, which is what every liberal is going to tell you. It's clear from the way they treated the Old Testament that they understood it was closed by at least 300. Excuse me, by at least 300 uh, B.C. It was closed and God was silent. He wasn't speaking anymore, and that's the test. Once God's given you all the information you need, the test is, am I going to trust Him when He's silent? And that's part of the whole issue here. Or do you have to keep acting like a baby and get some kind of stimulation every month or two, thinking that God's speaking through you, which is where people are today. They, they want to have that constant validation. If God spoke once, that ought to be enough for 4,000 years of history, 6,000 years of history. He doesn't need to repeat himself in every generation. Remember when I was a teacher, I would tell them, I would tell them twice, and after that, I don't do repeats. If you didn't catch it by the second time, tough. No, but God's given us revelation down through 2,000 years of history again and again and again. He doesn't need to repeat miracles. He doesn't need to repeat special revelation. He doesn't need to keep acting the same way. This is an arrogant presumption that because God did it one way at one time, He has to always do it that way. Talk about putting God in a box. It's not the non-charismatic that's putting God in a box. It's the charismatic who's limiting God to the same means that he's always used and not understanding the distinction between the closed canon period and the pre-canon period. Okay, let's go back. I did another study I wanted to close out with tonight in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 talks about the fact that God revealed himself after, that after he spoke to the, to the fathers by means of the prophets in various fragments and a variety of forms. 
Well, what were those forms? Well, two of the, one of the forms we looked at before, and that was theophanies and direct appearances and, and clear objective communication from, they could have been recorded by, by anyone. So that's the, uh, that was a background. But he also appeared in dreams and visions. And I want to talk about this a minute because every now and then you run around people who say, well, I had a dream and God appeared to me in the dream. God spoke to me in a dream. God spoke to me in a vision. Well, let's understand what's going on historically in dreams and visions because once you understand this, you realize that this was very unusual for God to speak in dreams or visions. And there were important reasons for why he did so, and there were characteristics of God speaking in dreams and visions that don't apply to us today at all. First of all, let's look at vocabulary. Dream is the Hebrew word kalom, and vision is the Hebrew word machazeh. Nothing distinctive about those words. Kalom uh, means dream, and machazeh means vision. And they're virtually synonymous. They're used in many times, and this is point number two, they're used in synonymous parallelism in numerous psalms and proverbs and passages in Job where they are not distinguishable. So they're very similar concepts. Uh, A dream may take place, the distinction may be that a dream takes place when you're asleep and a vision may come when you're awake. But that's the only distinguishing factor. Dreams take place when you're asleep and visions when you're awake. Point number three. In the Old Testament, there are nine dreams and two visions in the book of Genesis. I think that's real important to notice. There's only about 11 or 12 dreams in the whole Old Testament. Now think about that a minute. Nine of the dreams occur before they had a canon of any kind. And then it stops. Why would it stop? Because God's putting the focus on his written word. I mean, just pay attention to the text of Scripture. In the Old Testament, there are nine dreams and two visions in Genesis. The next dream after Genesis doesn't occur until Judges 7.13, and it occurs with a Gentile. And the situation is that, that, that Gideon has been called as a judge to go defeat this army, of, this coalition made up of mostly Midianites and Amalekites and a few others, and they outnumber him about 120 to 1, and Gideon was not a man of strong faith. He shows up in Hebrews 11, which is great encouragement to me, because this guy just really didn't want to pay attention to God. He wanted to keep trying to... He put out the fleece hoping that somehow he would get away from from uh, uh, having to do what God told him to do, and he would have something too hard for God, and he would disprove this command. And so he didn't do that, and so he's going to go down and check out the enemy, do go on a little uh, recon patrol. And he came down to the uh, outskirts of the camp of the Midianites, and there are these two Midianite Gentile soldiers sitting there cooking their uh, rations. At, and, and one of them says to the other one, you know, I had this dream about last night that was really funky, you know. I'm just sleeping, and all of a sudden I'm dreaming this clear dream about a, a loaf of bread that falls down amongst the troops and knocks everybody down. He doesn't know what it means. Gideon knew what it meant. See, the Jew can interpret the Gentiles' dreams, and that's a point we'll get to in a minute, that when Gentiles dream dreams in the Old Testament, it took a Jew to interpret them. They couldn't interpret them themselves. 
So Gideon recognizes that God is going to give him victory. He could interpret the dream. So why is there this gap from, from Joseph, basically, the time of Joseph, all the way to Gideon? Well, because the Word of God appears in the middle. God gives his revelation. Moses writes the Pentateuch. And now you have the five books of the Bible. You have something to read, something to pay attention to. And God wants to focus on, the, on his written word and not on dreams and visions or experiences or so-called prophecies or, or revelation. Point number four, developing out of what we observed on the Gentiles, several Gentiles have revelatory dreams in the Old Testament. Abimelech in Genesis 20. This is another scenario. Abimelech's the king of the Philistines. Abraham doesn't learn. Like most of us, he has the same human viewpoint problem-solving devices he uses again and again. So when he has to go to live in the land of the Philistines to survive, which he shouldn't have needed to do, he once again lies about Sarah being his wife. thought he would have learned the first time. And so God appears to Abimelech and warns him off. You know, Don't touch Sarah. But he doesn't really understand the, the dream. A- Abraham has to make everything apparent to him. He, he, he has this dream, and then there's the baker and the butcher, and they don't understand their dream. Joseph has to interpret it for them, and Pharaoh doesn't understand his dream about the uh, seven years of plenty and the seven years of, of uh, a famine where you have the fat, seven fat cows and seven lean cows. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 has a dream and he doesn't understand what's going on there either. And so, once again, the Jew has to come in to explain it to him. See, Jews have the responsibility for revelation. So even though a Gentile sees a dream, he, can't, he doesn't have a clue what it means unless he has a genuine prophet interpret it for him so he can understand it. And in each of these instances, the dreams have to do with the, the advance of the plan of God. With Abimelech's dream, the issue is protecting the seed, the Abrahamic covenant. With the baker and the butcher, once again, the focus is elevating Joseph so Joseph can be in a place to protect the other brothers, the other tribes of Israel, when they're going to be moved out of Canaan down to Egypt. And so this isn't about personal needs or I had a dream about what God's going to do in my life and this and that. And the other thing, it's not this self-absorbed, self-centered, arrogant, superficial uh, garbage that you get today from arrogant, superficial, self-centered Christians. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the dreams that he has are global. I mean, they they outline world history from the uh, 5th century B.C. or 6th century B.C., 7th century B.C., all the way down through the end of time. This is global. It all has to do with God's plan for Israel. So we have to understand what's going on in the dreams. It's not like, well, God, what do you want me to do about going to college? And God's going to reveal it to you in a dream. But this is the kind of silly stuff that happens today. Now, after Gideon had his dream, the next dream that occurs is when God appears to Solomon at the time that he becomes what? The king of Judah, the king of Israel. They're still united. It's the... He's the Davidic heir. And he says, ask me what you will. See, God is fulfilling part of the promise to David in the Davidic covenant. So these dreams have to do with working out God's promises in the covenants. Sixth, only two, these are the only two dreams, the, the Midianite dream 
uh, you have the Midianite dream and the Solomon dream that occur after the law is revealed in the Pentateuch written. The other, the other dream with Nebuchadnezzar comes in as a Gentile outside the land. Then you have visions. We'll get to visions in a minute. Point number seven, the dreams all relate to God's plan for history and the outworking of either the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant. Then we have visions. Two visions occur in Genesis. Abraham has one, and in it the Abrahamic covenant is cut. And Jacob has a vision, and it has to do once again with, with the, uh, what's going on with him and, and uh, uh, Laban, his father-in-law, and is going to provide the basis for his eventual return to the land. So they both have to do with the Abrahamic covenant. You also have visions in Daniel 2, Daniel 4, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10. All of these visions have to do with God's plan for Israel, how God's going to protect him in the land. Other statements are made by the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Nahum, uh, Habakkuk. All of these prophets are giving information to Israel to warn them that God's going to judge them, fifth cycle of discipline, what's going to happen under the fifth cycle of discipline, that God is not deserting you completely, and that there's going to be a future for Israel. These themes run throughout these prophets. What are they doing? They are coming along with the, with the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and says just because you're going to be defeated militarily and taken out of the land, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful and that God's forgiving forgetting about you. So these visions all relate to the future of God's plan for for Israel. So our conclusion, dreams and visions initially were designed to communicate where there was no written canon of scripture. And second, they were designed to give information on the outworking of God's faithfulness to his written word in the covenants. The point is, under, verse, under point 11, dreams and visions never communicated superficial, trivial, personal information or even inform, significant information about individual lives. It had to do with something special in the outworking of God's plan, even if it did include something about somebody's life. We'll see that in a minute in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the same pattern continues. And where you see dreams and visions is only in Acts. You don't see that it's talked about in the later in any of the epistles. For example, the first vision is, is Ananias. Ananias is given a vision that Paul's coming to town. Paul's just been saved, and he's blind from that uh, revelation of Jesus Christ when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ blinded him. And Ananias is told to go get him and heal him. Now, how does that fit into the flow of history? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to be a prophet to the Gentiles. And so this is not just something that God just wants Ananias to do. This fits a very big, this provides a very big element in the scope of God's plan. Then Peter has a vision, Acts 10 and 11, about taking the gospel to Cornelius and the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. Again, it is dealing with a major shift in history. Paul had a vision of a man inviting him over to to Macedonia to bring the gospel. Again, this is the first time the gospel crosses from Asia into Europe. And then the Lord appears to Paul uh, when he is in the midst of persecution and a threat to end his ministry in Acts chapter 18. The Lord appears to encourage him. Now that's important because 
Paul still has vital ministry to the Gentiles to fulfill in laying the foundation for the church age. So the pattern continues. Old and New Testament, that when God appears in dreams and visions, the revelation given was, was macro, macro-historical. It gives the big picture. It has to do with dispensational shifts. It has to do with, with protecting his people and fulfilling and, and reminding people of what he has done, what he's going to do in terms of the covenant, his covenants. And then in the 13th point is you have various visions in Revelation, but what are they? In Revelation, you're back into the tribulation period, which is Daniel's 70th week. This has to do with Israel. We're back in the last seven years of the dispensation of Israel. What is being worked out on a global scale? It's the outworking of the curses of Deuteronomy 28, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. Until Israel finally turns and calls upon the name of the Lord just prior to the battle of Armageddon. So the visions in Revelation once again are related if you develop it enough to the outworking of all of the covenants and bringing everything to its conclusion at the end of the tribulation period when all the covenants are finally fulfilled in their entirety to the nation Israel. So this just gives you some idea of what dreams and visions are and how people just don't understand uh, what's going on when God appears to people in a dream or a vision? It's not just some personal little thing. Oh, I left one thing out in the New Testament as I went through that, and that's Joseph. Joseph has various dreams that are designed to protect the Messiah. The angel, God appears to him in a dream, says, you know, get out of uh, Nazareth, go to Egypt, get out of Egypt. You can go back. And he's warned off again to go and settle in Nazareth. And these are divine warnings to protect the Messiah. So you see, there's nothing in, in the giving of dreams or visions anywhere in the Scripture that is of this kind of immediate personal interest or personal divine guidance. This is all uh, national, covenantal in scope. That's why we say that Revelation is ended. Once it ends, it ends. It ended in 95 A.D., and the test for us is, are we going to rely on it? Are we going to walk by faith and not by sight? See, if God's still communicating, you're walking by sight. You're expecting God to show up in your dreams or visions or speak to you, and you're going to base your Christian life on that. That's not walking by faith. Faith means putting your trust in the Word of God, the sufficiency of the revelation of God, and learning what God says, studying it, meditating upon it, concentrating on it. And that was the whole point. God quit pretty much operating on the basis of dreams and visions once there was a written canon of Scripture because that's what our attention needs to be on is a study of the Word of God. Now, next time we're going to start looking at the role of the Son in the opening four verses of Revelation, and that just really gets us into just a load of fascinating, fascinating information as we continue in Hebrews with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded that you have 
overseen the process of revelation. You've completed your revelation. It is a sufficient revelation, which means it's enough for us. Father, help us to realize the importance of it, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and that there is nothing more important, more significant, more valuable for us than to know your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.